Welcome to Leading Past Limits. We share lessons learned from accomplished leaders who have placed service before self so that you accelerate your growth as a servant leader. In this episode, we feature Eric Ballier, the Deputy Special Agent in Charge for Homeland Security Investigations Denver Regional Field Office. He has more than 22 years of federal law enforcement experience, having started his career with the U.S. Border Patrol in 1999. His assignments of notable distinction and national impact include service as the Law Enforcement Advisor to the Secretary of Homeland Security and is Chief of both the Homeland Security Undercover and Contraband Smuggling Units. However, one of his most significant achievements stems from his leadership of the Nogales, Arizona Field Office. In that role, Eric led a team of almost 70 people. He developed the strategy that, in collaboration with DEA and other partners, resulted in the 2014 capture of the most wanted international drug trafficker in the world, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman Lara, the leader of the Sinaloa drug cartel. Learn about the leadership challenges he encountered along the way and how he worked with others to overcome them. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kumar. So listen, what uh, what led you into this career of law enforcement? Uh, so being honest, I was I was not much of a, of a student growing up and I grew up in upstate New York, suburb of Syracuse, and actually my neighbor across the street was a deputy sheriff, and I was, uh, I was like a junior in high school, and he invited me for a ride-along, and I rode with him on the mid-shift, and he had midnight shift, and he had a cane, he was a canine handler, and uh, after that, I was, like, I was hooked, so went to college, graduated, and my senior year of college, I interned with the New York State Police which was a year-long program, and it just kind of solidified my interest and kind of calling, if you will, to, to be in law enforcement. So coming out of school at 22, needing a job, student loans kind of piling up, uh, you know, I started applying for different different positions, and one thing that caught my mind or caught my eye was the U.S. Border Patrol. Um, so I took the test, went through the hiring process. I graduated college in May, and I went to the academy in, in July of 99. And it's been a it's been a it's been a wild ride ever since. Yeah, I, I noted too that you uh, you actually you ultimately transitioned to be a special agent. You took your oath on 9-11-2001. Yeah, what was that like? That's uh, that was a day none of us will forget. But uh, it was even more important that you know I was sworn in as a special agent with U.S. Customs that Tuesday morning. I in processed Monday, and then the attacks happened Tuesday morning. I went to the office. There was it was just chaos, and uh, obviously, and uh, the special agent in charge at the time was like, "Hey, we're getting you sworn in. You just came from the border patrol. We're sending you back to the border. We're doing 100% in, inbound outbound inspections." And uh, one of the ASACs was like, "Hey, he hasn't been to the academy. Um, he hasn't qualified or anything like that." So I was sworn in that Tuesday. Helped out just whatever I could do around the office. Uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and I flew to Glinko, Georgia, Friday, Friday morning, and it was a uh, it was a surreal feeling. There was like two other people on the plane. They had just opened the airspace less than 24 hours prior. Flight attendants were crying. It was just uh, it was a real somber experience. And one thing that I took away from that was, uh, as you, as you know, you know, you have your oath of office that signed that you signed and stated, and you know, there's the witness. And over the years, I, you know, obviously the date stuck in my head, but I, I could not for the life of me find the actual oath of office form. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, it bothered me for a lot of reasons. And then in one of my moves actually out here to Denver just a few years ago, um, I was going through boxes and there was this blue plastic folder with the U.S. Customs Service seal that hasn't been around since 03. And I was like, oh, man, here's all my in-processing documents. And there, in pristine condition, was the original ink signature oath of office. So that thing is now framed. It hangs in the door of my office at the SAC office in Denver. It's the first thing you see when you walk in, last thing you see when you walk out. So uh, it was... Uh, I guess uh, kind of a good ending. It's a somber reminder for for what we do. Yeah, and and here you are, twenty two years later, a federal law enforcement service. Um, you know, my question for you is, you know, who are the three people that have most influenced you? That's a good one. Um, so it's going to cl- sound cliche, but in my personal life. Uh, my my wife, hands down. Um, she keeps me grounded. Good answer, Eric. <laughs> she ran all the all the IT traps to make this happen. Uh, you know, um, she's a wonderful wonderful spouse, wonderful mom. So in my personal life, hands down, uh, it, it was her. And um, in my professional life, there was uh, an agent who since retired as a GS thirteen, kind of you know crusty, grumpy old guy. And, uh, you know, I had talked to him about becoming a supervisor and getting into leadership. And he was like, look, I've been doing this for whatever it was, like 27 years at the time. And he's like, you can end up like me, like just kind of bitter, end of his career, you know, or he's like, take all the things that you don't, that you've experienced through bad leadership. And take all the good qualities from your good, good leaders, your colleagues. And he's like, sounds cliche, but go go impact people's lives. He's like, be a group suit, be a rack, be a sack, whatever you want to do. He's like, just remember when you were an agent, what you liked and what you didn't like from your first, second, and third line leaders. I was like, yeah, that's that's legit. I'll take that to heart. And um, and then the. The second one in my professional life, and you mentioned his name, uh, he's he's currently the acting deputy director, uh, Matt Allen, who was the SAC, longtime SAC in Arizona. And um, he took a lot of calculated risks, I guess would be a good way to say. He wasn't afraid to to support. I mean, I was a group soup and, you know, he was he was the sack, and he was like, I like this. Let's see where it goes. And he took a, and he ended up being, he was the sack all the way through. You know the capture of Chapo in 2014, and you know I think there were a, there could have been a, a different trajectory that things took if you had different leaders in place that may have taken the I would say like conservative or there's always risk, but it's it's about managing risk and calculating risk and not taking unnecessary risk. So what did, what did you value the most about uh, Matt's leadership style? He was a no-nonsense guy, and I first met him when he was a group soup in, in Nogales when I was a brand-new agent in 2001 and 2002. And the one thing that struck struck me back then is it was like the middle of the night. It was like winter. It was freezing, and I helped another, another agent with some like run-of-the-mill 300-pound dope load up on the top of some mountain, and I was 
I was pissed because it's midnight, it's cold. You know, I got to hump all this dope down to the car. I got to process it. And, you know, we were, we were a ways away. All of a sudden I hear on the radio, uh, Matt and another, another Nogales agent coming back from some controlled delivery they had done. And they heard us on the radio and they were like, Hey, you need help? And I had a sedan at the time and he had a, an F-150 truck and he was like, Hey, you know, just throw it in the back of my truck. I'll, I'll run it up to, to Tucson and just follow me and we'll, we'll toss it in the vault there. I was like, cool. All right. And you know, here's a guy that I don't really know. He's from another office. I'm not in his group and he's on his way home. He lived just a few miles from, from where we were. And he took the time out to, to spend another probably two or three hours didn't get home until the wee hours of the morning. And, you know, that was one of those kind of aha moments, if you will, where I was like, you know, like that's a, that's a stand-up thing to do. And, um, mm. you know, and then he left and went to headquarters and he, he came back as the sack and he still had that, Hey, I'm, I'm open. I'll support you. Don't, don't sugarcoat stuff. He wasn't like, you know, he was a straight shooter, you know, air force guy and all that stuff. And he was a straight shooter too. Or he's like, Hey, like, don't BS me. And if it, if, if you have something legit, I'll, su- I'll support it. And, you know, he did that on, a, on, essentially the three biggest cases that I've ever worked on. I respect that a lot. And I kind of wanted, I wanted to emulate that in my leadership style as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably also comforting to know, right. That you've got a guy who's willing to share in the sacrifice, uh, to put in the work, the long hours. And, you know, he's a regular guy, no nonsense guy, but now he's running the agency yeah. as the, you know, as a, in, in a deputy director role. And obviously, and you know, I know Matt as well. Um, brings those virtues to to that position and those responsibilities. So, Eric, how, how do you ensure your well being? You know, physical, mental, spiritual. I mean, because the job is tough. Job's definitely tough, and it took a toll on me. And that it, that resilience piece is still a work in progress for me. Um, I've found a couple things: a knowing when you need a change, recognizing the fact that either the operational tempo or the job has consumed a larger piece of your life than it should and recognizing when you need uh, to pull back from that. Not necessarily a new career, but for me, after the, after the Chapo capture, I had been just running and gunning for so long. It was taking a toll on uh, the health of my relationship with my wife who was pregnant with our first daughter and just recognizing that if I didn't, if I didn't kind of put my hand up and say, "Hey, I need to change a pace here," then things would have probably deteriorated fairly quickly because, like, I, it, it just it consumed me. And I let me let me ask you about that actually. So, because that takes courage, right? I mean, in in that environment, you're expected to run and gun like nonstop. So, like, what gave you the confidence to raise your hand to your boss and say, "Hey, look." I need, I need some time here. Finding out that uh, my wife was pregnant when I was in Mexico city, planning the chapel up. Mm. Um, and that was uh, like, that was, that was tough. And then also recognizing the fact that, uh, you know, my dad died at 50 and you know, you're never, you're never guaranteed time. And then just saying after chapel, that was kind of like, like being honest, what else is there? Like, mm-hmm. if, if you're not gonna if you're not gonna take a step back at that point, then I was never gonna take a step back. 
So that was really the trigger. And, you know, having, it took us a long time. We both wanted kids. It took us a long time to get to that point. And then finally we're at that point. She's emotional on, on the other end of a phone where I'm calling from the embassy in Mexico city. And not, I'm not even there to kind of share that or experience that. I think that was when it's like, when it really hit home where I was like, all right, if, if, uh, if I don't unplug now, then I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for, for the family life. Yeah, we got yeah. back and Chapo got captured in February and I reported to, to DC in December of 2014. It was yeah. probably so the biggest you, thing I've ever done. Well, so let's let's unpack that a little bit. Let's before the the events leading up to that, because you've been referencing Chapo. Um, tell tell us a little bit about what made him, you know, I mean, one of the most notorious drug traffickers in world history. He's just he's got he's like this for anybody that followed or was involved in in drug law enforcement. He was he was like this Bigfoot. He, everybody knew he existed but or thought he existed, but no one, very few had really seen him. He's captured and he does this, you know, laundry cart escape. It's kind of, it, it, what, what, what's the saying where it's like uh, Hollywood couldn't make that, couldn't make some of that up. And, you know, he was, he was kind of the Pablo Escobar of, of Mexican drug trafficking and, you know, after Pablo's dead, he kind of assumes or ascends into this like half Robin Hood, half terrorist, drug trafficker, you know, just every, if you were involved in law enforcement and didn't know who Chapo was, then you were kind of living under, living under a rock. And, you know, in, in Arizona, like his organization controlled essentially the entire border with Mexico. And you go back to the, there's this infamous drug tunnel that was discovered in Douglas, Arizona, back in the early nineties, that just kind of like blew people's minds. There were like hydraulic lifts, pool tables, warehouses, just, you know, sheer volume of dope was staggering. So he was this, he was this like, uh, just like figment that people, the government spent years and hundreds of millions of dollars chasing and trying to catch and dismantle his organization. And we somehow ended up like neck deep in it. Which was, How did that happen? How did you wind up neck deep? In it, it happened by accident. It happened right. by sheer, by sheer accident. So uh, I'll try to keep, try to keep it as short as I can. Um, we did a real successful year plus long wire investigation when I was the resident agent in charge of Casa Grande, Arizona. Massive takedowns, national press, impactful case, um, solved some homicides, whole nine yards. Um, and I was kind of like, I was burned out then at the end of, at the end of 2012. And at the end of 2012, I was given or afforded the opportunity to go to Nogales as the assistant special agent in charge and run that office, which I did. I went down there and you know, they're all young agents. Like these guys are like less than a year out. That's kind of like those big border offices are where people cut their teeth, fresh out of the academy, all that sort of stuff. So I got down there and, you know, I was, the plan was to kind of just kind of put it on cruise control for a little bit and take a, take a breather. And then these guys started briefing me on <clears throat> cases involving airplanes that were being, ex you know, they wanted to export from the U.S. down to 
Mexico, Guatemala, Colombia, those areas, knowing that they were going to be loaded with dope and fly all over the place. And I was like, that's, like I haven't done that before. Like, that's pretty badass. By, the, by way of backdrop, the Fast and Furious operation, which was kind of Arizona was right in the middle of, had just occurred. Brian Terry was killed. Border Patrol agent was killed just north of, of our office in Nogales. Um, there was a real adversity, and understandably so to some degree, from the U.S. Attorney's Office to allow any sort of walking, like allowing in government, leave government control, anything related to, to drug trafficking. So we pitched to the, to the U.S. Attorney's Office, hey, we have this opportunity to, to put, these tra- put trackers in these planes, let them be exported, follow them around. Like get some of the communication and stuff like that. And they were like, absolutely not. No way. Uh-uh. Not touching it in a million years. We're like, okay. Um, and then there was an attorney out of Maine Justice, the narcotics and dangerous drug section, who was like, yeah, this is kind of interesting. You know, I'm, I'll bite. Okay. And so these agents, you know, they, they started doing undercover purchases of planes and some money pickups. And it was all over the place. It was cool. There really were no clear, concise object, uh, case objectives or like what was what was the plan. So then BlackBerry Messenger was a new chat platform at the time. So these agents were like, hey, the, you know, we're seeing we're getting all these. They were being provided all these like screenshots of, of different dopers ordering up planes and boats and dope and money and coordinating all these things. And I was like, that'd be a pretty good wire case. You know, just throwing that out. I had done, you know, dozens upon dozens of wires previously. These guys hadn't. Like they were, some of them were six months out of the academy. They weren't even off their probationary period. And they were like, okay, that's cool. But where do you start? The technology is brand new. The agency doesn't have the, the capacity or the capability to actually intercept the platform. There was one case out of DEA Los Angeles involving intercepting a BlackBerry. But nobody else had done it. So they were, I was like, what, like, what are we going to do? And the, they convinced me like, hey, let's go up on a couple, let's write wires for a couple targets that we knew were heavily involved in drug trafficking. Let me ask you, what, what drove that strategy? Like what, what's the, well, you, there's this new thing happening, this new technology. No one's ever really done it. As you're analyzing how to deal with this change environment, you know, what's, what are you calculating and why those two targets? I mean, is there an objective you're working towards? So what I told them was like, look, we had done 15, 20 money pickups and different plane purchases. And it was kind of like the, the old, like the old guard, right. Where, you know, it was all about stats. Well, you know, we can pick up money all day long. We can buy planes all day long. Like, what is that going to do? You're gonna... And just for, for the audience, like a money pickup, if you just briefly explain what that is. So a, a money pickup is where bad guys in country A have proceeds from a crime somewhere in the States. And they, they need to get that money either back to them personally in the form of bulk cash or somehow laundered in a way that they can either get uh, money via bank-to-bank transfers or kind of um, laundered a lot of the techniques back then were heavy heavy equipment. So they would buy 
bulldozers and these heavy construction equipment and you know caterpillar excavators and planes and tractor trailers and all these things using legitimate companies in the states they would buy them legally export them and then go back to the Ill- illegal business once they were out of the country it was a clean way to get essentially their drug proceeds cleaned and then get something of value back right right so in this thanks case, for that we were we were buying planes right uh, but you said that the strategy is not taking you all the where all the way where you want to go so yeah it, it was just like all right we're picking up you know Mope, this bad guy a in newark has five hundred thousand dollars and we're gonna buy a plane in atlanta for five hundred thousand dollars like where does that get us i mean it's fun and it's you have to start everything somewhere but i was like guys the meat and potatoes on this is seeing who they're talking to and how they're coordinating all this so at the time we only had two we had two blackberry pins the, the personal identification numbers so i was like let's try to just let's try to convince a U.S. attorney and see if there's PC to, to intercept these two devices. And then let's let's reassess and evaluate. So several months later, because that is a laborious process, especially when you're when you have to figure out legal language for a platform that's, you know, a year old that the U.S. government has never or very rarely intercepted. So that was hurdle one. We get through that. OK, so now we're like, all right. We have our affidavit. It's being reviewed by the uh, by the main justice, and they come back and are like, "Good job, green light. You can do it." And we're like, "Okay, how do we do it? How do we physically do it? We don't we don't have the technology, which is that's a whole separate discussion." So through some contacts at DEA, DEA was like, "Hey, we have some first generation interception software." But you have to physically have the desktop computers in your office to do it. So I had a real good working relationship with with DEA. And they were like, yeah, well, we can float you too. We'll loan you too. So we're like, okay, great. And then what we realized is that, that from the time the bad guy would send a message, it would get routed through the DEA server in Virginia. The DEA would send it back over to our tech ops in Lorton, Virginia, who would then route it to, I think it was DEA Los Angeles, who would send us essentially a mirrored image of the communication to our to our wire. The time from the time that bad guy hit the enter button to the time we would actually see his communication on a good day would be 14 to 16 hours. It was typically somewhere between like 18 and 24. So we learned real yeah, you can't you can't you can't do anything with that. <laughs> no. We were dead in the water. And I told them that. I was like, guys, like, yeah, like the next day you're getting awesome, awesome, you know, criminal conversations. But they happened yesterday. Like now you have to try to track down a, a killing, a drug load, something of that nature that happened at least 24 hours. And you're getting the next day's intercepts about what happened today. So it was uh, it was a process that was completely unmanageable for any sort sort of long term investigation or any sort of well thought out strategy into what we were what we were trying to figure out on what to do. So how did you innovate? How did you you've you've outlined all of the different challenges, the legal challenges, the technological challenges. Um, 
what was your process? How did you approach this as a leader in terms of, of overcoming these, these hurdles? Another great question. So um, we had done some previous, uh, I had done a lot of wires previously. So I had a good working relationship with our technical operations center in Lorton, Virginia. So I, I called up a couple of those guys and I was like, hey, this is what we have. We're looking at BlackBerry Messenger. Right now we're using first generation DEA interception software and it's getting us nowhere. So they were like, this is an emerging technology. The agency as a whole needs to be evaluating this. You're essentially the first case that has presented itself from HSI. We're going to send a team of engineers and like they had from the contractor that had the, had the, that generated the software. There's a national contract for title three intercepts. So software engineers from that company came out to Arizona and were like, what is your requirement? What do you need? What is your criteria? And we will try to build and integrate that into the existing framework of traditional, the traditional interception platform that the agency had. And I was like, awesome. How long is that going to take? And they're like, probably six months. And I was like, I was like, well, a lot could happen in six months. So to their credit, they stayed out there for weeks and they were, they were creating patches and doing all this IT stuff. And I would say within about three to four weeks, they were like, listen, we've, we've built a, we've built something that will serve your case. It does not have the bandwidth or the, or the capacity to do anything besides that. But this will, this will give you very close to real-time interception capabilities for the number of lines that you think you would go up on. But at this point, though, they don't know that it's going to be connected to Chapo, no, right? Nobody did. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, to see that kind of commitment of resources for something that you're not quite sure who your high-value target is. Exactly. And at the same time, other offices were getting wind of uh, what, we were, what we were doing as far as like trying to intercept BlackBerry Messenger. So they were like, they were asking us for go-bys for the affidavits, the technical language to include in pen registers or trap and trace devices. So, you know, you're trying to run a case, you're trying to develop software that will allow you to advance your case. And then you're also trying to assist other offices to further their cases because it would be a good thing for the agency. So there, there was there was a lot going on. And, and this is... This is the early part of 2013, first half of 2013. So you're, so you're, as I understand it, right? You're, you're letting the wiretaps play out. You're identifying targets. You're mapping the organization, as you said. What's the moment when you realize you're, you're into something that is, you know, everybody dreams about? <laughs> so, yeah, it's good. so the guys would come. The guys would come to me and be like, "Hey, we." They keep talking about Nana. They, they, there's, there's a real, there's deference and respect shown for this one moniker. They all used like monikers. There was no, it was like Bell one two three or Mako four six or something along those lines. They were like, we think he's pretty important, and but we don't know. We thought maybe it was a Plaza boss, um, which is a, a guy that controls a certain corridor uh, smuggling route on behalf of. The leadership of the cartel. So it wasn't until the fall of 2013 when uh, there's an agent who is now at Special Operations Division in Chantilly running point for the agency on all this, where he was like, I think it's Chapo. And I was like, okay, 
Yeah, I've seen I've seen this movie. I've heard all this before. Okay, and he was like, "Well, you know, they talk, they make references." And this guy is a genius, genius. He ended up testifying at the trial as the government's uh, subject matter expert for wire intercepts. He was an expert witness. The guy is a genius, and he was like, "I think it's I think it's him," and here are the reasons why. And you know, I heard him out, and I was like, "Oh, you know, there might be some merit. We need, you know." If I'm gonna if I'm gonna put that out there, we need to be fairly certain. We don't need to be sure, but we need to be fairly certain. We need to back it with some sort of articulation. You know, I was all about doing things for the right reason, and I wasn't sure. I wasn't convinced, so I'm not gonna go to leadership above me if I'm not convinced. And then there was a conversation that was intercepted, where the the context of the Spanish that you were seeing changed from you get used to the way uh, one of these guys would communicate the vernacular, the vocabulary, the tone, all that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden one day in the middle of the day, there's, it's like someone else grabbed the phone and it became real choppy, phonetic. uh, And it was clearly a man and his ex-wife having a fight over money. And the ex-wife is like, you owe me money for for January and De- or December and January, and you left me, and this is why you're alone. And Edgar died for nothing, and you know all, all this just like ex-wife berating her her ex-husband. And then the husband was like, "I'm sorry, I'll send you money. I'll send Raton, a, a nickname, to come pick you up, and I'll and give my love to." Uh, whatever the there was a little girl's name and like i had been around long enough where i was like he's talking about edgar chapo's kid who was killed in in culiacan uh it happened that time of the year they had a mausoleum that big kind of elaborate mausoleum that that they needed to pay for and then raton was well known to be one of chapo's sons and then the, the daughter who he referenced was one of raton's daughters so this is the call. This is the intercept. You know it yeah. now. This put this puts it over the top. Where I was like, I was like, it's him. So how does this change your approach moving forward? I mean, in terms of resourcing, partnership, interagency, competition, all these things are probably now going to come into play. Big time. So the the, the shift had to change. Had to go from kind of identifying and dismantling to now like you do have a legit opportunity to at least locate one of the most wanted men on the planet. And we're in Nogales, Arizona. We have, you know, I had been in ASAC for less than a year. You have agents that have been around probably barely longer than that. We had integrity issues in the office. We had integrity issues at the ports. So, like I became growingly concerned that this would leak out. Um, so we moved the entire operation to Tucson and we took over a Tucson conference room, which didn't sit all that well with a whole lot of agents in, in Tucson. We put siphon locks on the doors. We, it was a, it was a straight, you know, if, if you're not, if you don't, if you don't have a need to know, you're not going in that wire room. Let me ask you about that, Eric. So, you know, trust, they talk about when you're building trust in the workplace, there's four components, sincerity, reliability, competence, and care. Yeah. 
meaning that you know that you, they have a larger interest in mind than just their own selfish interests. Would you say that the the folks that you're recruiting for this particular thing they've pegged out on those four components for you based on your previous experience? Hands down. And I booted other people off that I didn't, and it, it wasn't it wasn't playing favorites. It was this just became a, a whole lot more serious than a, a run of the mill drug case, and I want people that are going to be involved in it for the right reasons, not to puff their chest that you know you know, brag around the office cooler or whatnot. Like if you're going to come work on this, we're going to work on it, but we're going to be, we're going to be all in all the time and it's going to be need to know. And that's that. And And I got to imagine you've got outside organizations, whether it's in the IC, DEA, FBI that are waiting to see what you do because um, you're asserting leadership HSI at this point still, I mean, still a fairly new organization. So, I mean, tell me a little bit about that. That's that's got to be tremendous pressure. You got to get it right. It, it it was so. We had, you know, the government has has major cases against the Sinaloa cartel, us, DEA, FBI, whole host of others. So we ended up in uh, several coordination meetings, relatively small groups in. LA, I think we were in Chicago and Vancouver, Canada. And the objective there was to essentially say, all right, you guys are all working different facets of, of Sinaloa. What do you have? What is your goal? Because the government would like to put together an operation to deal a pretty significant blow to the Sinaloa cartel as an organization. But we need to know all cards face up. And, you know, you've got these powerhouse, um, districts, judicial districts, Eastern District of New York, Southern District of New York, Northern District of Colorado, Southern District of California. And then, you know, we come strolling in as HSI Nogales. And they're kind of like, who, like, like, who are you with? Like, what? Like, how, like who let you in? Um, how'd you get here? And then, you know, I kind of opened it up, but then you let, you let the guys, the, the people that knew the subjects do the talking. Mm. And I tell you, you listen to any one of those agents for 10 minutes and you're like, those guys know what they're doing. You know, that's a really important point you made because I think too often leaders, they, uh, and maybe, I mean, maybe for the wrong motivations, they try to do the brief themselves. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it's a lack of trust in, in the direct report or, or what it is, but um, giving people the opportunity to, that are passionately owning an issue, giving them the opportunity to kind of present and and demonstrate just that competence from beginning to end is so powerful. Whether they are elegant communicators or not, just knowing knowing their case is so powerful. I mean, it's something I think a lot of leaders should kind of think about uh, when they when they're in these similar kinds of situations. I, I tell you what, uh, I've done my fair share of high level briefs and whatnot, but. There's something to be said about trusting your people. And I don't know if, uh, to your point, I don't know if it's a perception thing. Like you don't want, people are hesitant to not look like they're in charge or in command. But I've always been a firm believer, you know, if I put someone up there that knows knows that stuff inside and out, like it's a reflection. It ultimately, it will reflect on you. Right. 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 You know, we had three guys in Vancouver, Canada, and it's this massive conference table. And 
there's every high-powered criminal chief in every high-powered district. And then, you know, these three guys from Arizona are like, here's what we're doing. And they just rattled it off. And you would get some, like, probing questions from, from some people. And they're like, well, that guy is more associated with this. And they're like, no, he's not. Here's why. And they just hit it out of the park. And so before you get into those details, tell me, like, what's, what do you th- what's your go-to strategy for partnering with other stakeholders? Because you clearly, I mean, you had to do this routinely throughout this case. What, what is the essential ingredient in successfully partnering with, with other organizations like DEA, with, like with the Mexican government? Uh, hands down, being just straight up honest, not, not playing games and giving as much as you're, you're willing to take. Like if, if we had information that would help a DEA Los Angeles case or a Bureau New York case, we were providing that info. It's like we had this treasure trove of, inf- uh, of, of intercepts and pins and seizures and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, it was just like, Hey man, we're not out. We're not out to play dirty. We're not going to, we're not going to do anything shady. And we expect that in return. And you did, there was this very professional group between DEA, us, the Bureau, some U S attorneys and some of the components in the Intel community that were like, all right, yeah, okay, let's do this. And it, it, like in my 22, 23 years, I've, I've never, I've never seen anything like it. Cause you're always skeptical. You're always kind of, you know, I'll show you one card. You show me one. We didn't have time for those games. But there must've been, well, circumstances where different organizations have different objectives. I mean, like what classically comes to mind to me is the difference from a law enforcement objective versus an IC, an intelligence community objective. I mean, how did you resolve conflicts in terms of differing goals and so on? The shift went from, the shift now is like a straight up manhunt. We're going after a single person in Mexico. We kind of, we're like, look, we don't have the bandwidth to do anything more. And everybody agreed, hey, you got, you have the most viable, actionable information that the government's had in a long time. So we have a legit shot at, go, at actually getting it. So we, we put some redundancies and some safety nets in place, largely through the IC and the high side, so that if, uh, if one of our judicial lines were to go down or get burned, there was, there was, some, there was enough information in the background that would spur up um, kind of cla- on the classified side, some intelligence as to locations and planning and stuff like that. Um, the intel community was great in that regard. That's what they do. Um, so now the plan was, now the challenge was, what Mexican law enforcement or military organization has the capability and the integrity to do it? And that was a big challenge. And we we went to DEA for that one. Um, and, you know... Why did you go to DEA for that one? Because they had some very successful operations using the Mexican Marines or SAMAR uh, against some high-level targets in in Mexico. They yeah. ended up in um, rather large gunfights with a number of casualties on both sides, and and that was that was a, a pretty big concern. And yeah. we <laughs> I had to do some some truth to power speak in the embassy in mexico um we had finally gotten the marines 
and briefed them, and they were on board. And before we came back to the States, the, the Mexican Marines were like, we want um, an ISR platform, an intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance aerial platform to on station. And they wanted the CBP Predator drone. Um, our leadership was convinced that they wanted the, the feed to that drone during the operation. And people were very hesitant to push back on that idea. And I remember sitting in the, in the skiff in Mexico city with, um, then explain what a skiff oh, is. It's the, it's the facility where you can have uh, secured conversations in a, in a classified setting. Um, and talk and talk freely. So on the other end, the attache was in the room, two case agents, me, and on the other end of the secured VTC was the the EAD at the time, deputy EAD at the time, the chief of staff, the principal legal advisor, um, and and some some other folks with director in their title. And they weren't asking. They were saying, they were, it was, it was a direction. We want the we want the predator feed. And I kind of um, you know I'm in I'm in Mexico and I looked at the attaché and I was like kind of try to give him the nudge like you gonna you gonna jump on this one and he kind of he kind of paused. So then I just laid it out. I was like I was like gentlemen, I'm just gonna explain to you why I think that's a bad idea. And it was in large because the we are in a, we're operating in a different country that does not have the that does not have the U.S. Constitution, does not have the Fourth Amendment, operates in a completely different environment. There will be bodies. People will die during this operation. The question is, how many and in what circumstance? And I said, I cannot guarantee you that there will not be extrajudicial killings. The Mexican Marines were known to be trigger happy. And at the end of shootouts, you know, they had... Um, there were talks of uh, them killing people, um, bad guys, but nonetheless, combatants that had in, would have surrendered. And I said, I do not think that senior leadership would want to be a witness or even potentially a witness to anything that would go against the U.S. Constitution or the values in which domestic law enforcement operates. What were you feeling as you uh, as you presented that I was like, to him? I'm in Nogales. What's the worst that could happen? I'm, I'm <laughs> the worst place that they could send me. Like, you know, and I just, you know, if they made the decision, you know, they made the decision. And you could tell them I went on mute and I was like, I was sweating bullets. And um, a couple of minutes later, they came back and they were like, we're good without the feed. Keep us up to date. Godspeed. Let us know how things develop. And I was kind of, I mean, I was, I was kind of sweating there for, for a few minutes. Well, There's a couple of things that I like that you've kind of touched on there. I mean, you, you've touched on, first off, you talked about like the, uh, the partners you selected in Mexico, relying on DEA expertise. I mean, you know, for anyone that's been in law enforcement for a while, I mean, we know they have an incredible network of relationships around the world and work very closely with organizations. And I love how you're, you're, you're leaning on their strength in that. They're leaning on your strength and positioning with respect to the intercept. I love the integrity that you showed in terms of speaking truth to power, in terms of what you believe was the best course forward. What's what's next? How what's uh, what brings you into the uh, into the takedown? So uh, the intercepts start spinning that 
we now knew which cha house Chapo was in. So I was like, hey, man, what do you want to do? And he was like, put me back down there. So he went back to – I offered to go. The sack at the time made the right decision. I was like, hey, you're not going. <laughs> so he goes back down to Mexico. Um, we are now running the wires 24-7, which, which takes a lot to get to. So the wires are running 24-7. We have shifts. I'm sleeping on the couch. Um, the case agent, Jake, is down in Mexico. They – they get the green light. They know where he is. They they snatched one of the a chef of his that was going to deliver him breakfast that morning. He identifies the house. The Marines assault it. The the front door is, is reinforced with steel and then water bladders between these between these plates of steel. And they don't have I mean they don't have cutting torches or explosive breaching capabilities or anything like that. So they're just they're just wailing away with sledgehammers on this door. <coughs> Chapo hears him, opens the bathtub tunnel, that kind of famous picture of a, of a propped up tunnel, and he, he escapes. Um, we're picking up intercepts. He's in the tunnel. They're closing in on him. We don't know where he's going to pop up. We hit every other house to try to keep him underground. The Marines set up a massive perimeter, and he's gone. He's just mm. gone. That's got to be so demoralizing. Yeah. And um, – so that, that was through a, like a 24 hour period. And I remember calling the guys and being like, you know, let's meet at the office. <clears throat> we go up to the office and I'm like, Hey, you guys were there. You were at the right house at the right time. There's circumstances that are outside of your control. The Marines couldn't get through the door. We knew there was a tunnel there. You guys were as close as the Intel community, FBI, DEA. You guys did it. You were there. And, uh, the, but I'm hearing you. That's almost sounding like you think it's over. I did think it was over. I hundred percent. I hundred percent thought it was okay. over. Um, you know, I briefed up the sack. They seized the, you know, just tons and tons of dope and guns. They hit every house. They spent those next four days hitting every house we had identified. Wrapped up all his inner circle, bodyguards, cooks, couriers, all that sort of stuff. Seized the armored Mercedes, whole nine yards. So I'm like, you know, all right, guys, we're done. Um, that same agent that I mentioned that was a genius, he's like, he comes to me, he's like, he's in Mazatlan. I'm like, what do you, I'm like, what, what do you mean he's in Mazatlan? He's like, look, and he breaks out the, these intercepts and these, these geolocate where, where the phones had gone. And he's like, this guy picked them up and he took them to Mazatlan and he dropped them with this other guy and he's in Mazatlan. The marshals, our guy and DEA, they they locate the phone in this high-rise beachfront condo. And they're like, he's there. We're like, great, yeah, but it's 20 stories, probably 400 rooms. Like, I, So I'm like, what are you going to do? So he's like, well, that's going to be up to the Marines. And I kind of knew what they were hinting at. So afterwards, I found out that early the, early the next day, the Marines go to the, to the hotel manager and they're like, uh, did you, they're like, they geolocated the phone to a room. They're like, who's in, who's in that room? That room? I don't know. And they were like, wrong answer. And he's like, the guy came in in a wheelchair. He had sunglasses. We hadn't seen him since. So they made the office manager go up and, uh, and unlock the door. And so they, uh, they hit the room. Chapo gets off, gets out of bed. His wife and two twin daughters are there. He runs into a bathroom. They see him grab a, a, a old AR-15 
They hear him trying to chamber around. The Marines are ready to just start pumping rounds through the door. His wife's screaming, don't kill him, don't kill him, not in front of the kids, all this sort of stuff. Um, they give him one chance to come out. He puts his hands out through the door. They grab him. They take him down to the uh, to the to the parking lot, the basement parking garage in the hotel. And then there's that, you know, pretty famous picture of him with kind of his head pulled back, shirtless. And uh, our agent on the ground texted to me, and they're like, "He's like, we got him." What? So what? I mean, what did that feel like? I mean, what? I mean, what? What? Uh, you guys are in Arizona yeah. hearing the reports. What what happens? There? So my first reaction throughout that, all of that was I've got a guy who I've gotten to know. I know his family, his wife just gave birth and he's running around with these Mexican Marines uh, and he's depending on them for his life. Uh, the bad guys don't know that he's a U.S. agent. The bad guy, I mean, he's dressed as a Mexican Marine and all this other sort of stuff. So I, the fact that they got him and there had not been a shot fired blew my mind. So now they yeah. got him. And I remember my response being, holy shit. And I'm like, the first thing I need to do is let the sack know. And the second thing I need to do is immediately figure out how do I get Jake and those U.S. guys out of, out of country? Because like, it's not going to be long before the cavalry's called in and to try to, try to rescue their leader. So I called the sack and, I, and you know, I hadn't slept through that entire night and, uh, you know, He's like, what happened? What happened? I'm like, they got him. His reaction was, he was silent. And I was like, hey, they, did you hear me? They got him. And his response was the same as mine. He was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, okay, I got to get Jake out of there. You do, you do your sack stuff. Now I got to get, I got to get our guy home. Um, so he kind of started, he do, did the notifications up through headquarters. They did the confirmation of, yeah, it's actually him. Uh, they swept him away um, in Blackhawks. Jake was on, our guy was on the helicopter, you know, they're, they're flying, they get him to a, a secure location. They interview him. Uh, the Mexican press had shown up. They started getting wind that, that Chapo had gotten caught. <clears throat> the dopers started getting wind that Chapo had gotten caught. Like they're, they're trying to circle the wagons. Amazing. I mean, amazing investigation and, and I mean, a part of history, right? I mean, to be part of that operation. Um, if you were going to bottom line it, What's the most important uh, thing that the special agent in charge of the SAC did to support you as you pursued Chapo? He gave me the space to operate while breaking down and, and kind of being a, a top cover for all the bureaucratic kind of uh, nonsense, to put it politely, that was coming down from, from D.C. Because okay. there, once it got out, once it was known, like what we were going to do, who we were going after, you know, there, you've got the ambassador involved, you've got the, you know, the deputy chief of mission, you've got all the heads of the agencies, the secretary, everybody knew what was going on. Um, and he afforded, he, he kind of provided the top, well, he didn't kind of, he provided the top cover to allow me the, the space to kind of be that um, boots on the ground leader, for lack of a better term, to focus mm -hmm. on the mission. And he handled all, all of the, the beltway stuff. What was the most important thing that your troops needed from you? To know that I was all in and to know that um, it wasn't about, it wasn't about Chapo until the end. Chapo was kind of the, 
the curveball that came in, you know, towards the end of all all of it. We had gone through all those all those challenges and and stuff that I laid out, and they knew that hey, this wasn't about uh, an ego trip. That this wasn't about the news. This wasn't about the media or anything like that. This this was hey, let's do this for the like if your if your intentions are true and they're they're in good faith. I do. I am the, of the belief that everything everything tends to work out. You're gonna you're gonna hit speed bumps along the way, but being there for them and knowing that like we were all in it, we had all been in it from the ground floor up. Never never expecting in our wildest dreams that February twenty second, twenty fourteen, you know, the second most wanted man on the planet's in bracelets at the end of it. So what's uh what's your main takeaway? from uh, from that experience i mean i had a, i had a lot of them i think the the biggest one is that like there's nothing there's nothing uh extraordinarily special about about me and and I, i've told this to the guys and, and they, they they would say the same thing there was nothing extraordinarily special about them they weren't like ivy league grads they weren't you know they didn't come out of uh, special operations forces in the military. They weren't these like high speed, low, low drag type guys. They were just, all of us were just frankly average individuals that kind of galvanized around a common goal and just had each other's backs and powered through everything. You know, like when people are like, you're not, we had the U S attorneys being like, you're out of your mind. You're like, you're not on Chapo. That's a, that's a secretary. That's a, underling you're like all right we'll see and like just you know if you as a kid growing up in upstate new york and you know they're like to be a part of that is something i couldn't have imagined in my wildest dreams and do i I don't think i'm not a true believer in luck i think if you if you think strategically and in the in the law enforcement world also apply those strategies in an operational sense you up the probability of success. Like to me, luck is just throwing a dart and, and you know, or rolling a dice, right? Like it's just complete chance. If you do things that will position yourself for a better outcome, the likelihood of that outcome happening are exponentially higher. And, you know, you, you spoke about how you had each other's backs through that and, and, no such thing as luck. It's kind of, you're, you're prepared. And so listen, Eric, you, uh, I mean, what an amazing career. Um, I mean, this is one chapter of it, but you've, uh, you've served in a number of different roles. And, um, and I would say again, I mean, service before self, you've certainly done that and demonstrated that across your career for other people that are interested in, you know, uh, a noble kind of career of selfless service, like the one you've pursued, particularly within Homeland Security investigations. What advice would you give them as they're looking to pursue, you know, walk down the road you've walked? Uh, so, I, the short answer is that just about anything is possible. It, it truly is. I know that sounds cliche, but if it's a career that it's not a career for everybody, but if you're going to go, if you're going to 
go down that road, whether you're with HSI, DEA, FBI, ATF, doesn't make a difference. Like go all, go all in, work on those uh, integrated work and life balances, but it is a noble, it is a noble career. And, you know, it's always disheartening when, you know, you kind of see um, law enforcement, the community of, of law enforcement, whether you're state, local, federal, doesn't matter. Um, kind of the public perception, I think, is has changed. It's different than, than when I first came in. I, I was not prepared for, for that challenge. And I think educating people with the fact that, hey, like, I've risked my life. I've been injured. I've lost friends. Like people I've worked with have died, have been killed violently, you know, and it's, it's a noble profession. You know, it, yeah. it, it truly is. Do I think, I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, we catch Chapo and he's extradited and convicted and is coincidentally doing life in prison here in Colorado, that like drugs have stopped right. being smuggled through his organization. But I think the determination of, of the, the men and women that are involved in, in that line of work, if you don't have them, the state of society, the state of the country is in such a bad place that no matter what happens, whatever you see in, 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 the, in the media and in the public sphere and some of that, you know, um, there, there are just so many dedicated men and women and professionals across the country that would sacrifice their lives, risk their lives for people they don't know. Um, and I think, I, you know, whenever I leave service, like there's a, you know, you're going to, you're going to stay in contact with the people that were truly there for you both professionally and, and personally. So for anybody out there that's kind of thinking of law enforcement, uh, you know, 20 plus years, it, it, I've never viewed it as a job. I've never like had to, had to go to work. And that's what I wanted in life. I'd be miserable if I was if I was doing anything else. And I, there's not a whole lot I would be particularly good at. But... <laughs> Let's see. Well, listen, Eric, thank you for, uh, for spending the time with us today. Thank you for your service. And uh, Godspeed as you continue to, to help protect uh, our communities, our homeland, and, and lead, lead your folks in, in, in difficult circumstances. Much appreciated. Thank you for the opportunity. It's meant a lot. And I wish you all the best. Good seeing you. Hopefully we'll be able to see, see each other one day in person too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.